Acts chapter number 6 this morning. Acts chapter number 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, I'm going to try my hardest not to get ahead of myself uh, because the next couple weeks we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and then 8 as well. And it's really kind of encompassing the life of Stephen. We don't have a lot that is referenced about Stephen, but uh, what we do know is just powerful. Acts chapter 7 is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts and encompasses the whole chapter. Uh, so, you know, if, if Stephen can take that long, just, just wait until how long I can take. Uh, but anyway, Acts chapter number 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and stand if you would. We're going to read a few of these verses and then we'll, we'll get into things today. Acts chapter number 6. We're going to start in verse number 8. So last week we left off the first seven verses. Uh, we talked a little bit about, again, the early church and how uh, it wasn't that the apostles were above ministry. It wasn't that they were above uh, serving other people within the local church. It's just the work had grown so much that they couldn't do everything that needed to be done. Uh, and, and their main priority back in verse number four, it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. If the church really wants to go forward for the apostles and those that are preaching the gospel, they need to study God's word. They need to be full of God's word in their life so that they can give it to the people and, and equip the people. And really the, the work of the church going forward is through the people of the church, the members of the church. So uh, what they did was they appointed seven men that really turned into the, the first seven deacons in the early church, and we had the names listed in verse number seven. And today, today we're going to talk about one man in particular, uh, the man named Stephen. So verse number eight, <clears throat> look what it says. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. So they like to argue. Anybody like to argue in here? All right. Very good. You would have been great on this day. Um, verse number 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. There's probably been many times where we've argued with someone and we realize that we were quickly outmatched, right? There's no way we can argue with this person. They're much wiser, much smarter than us. That's kind of what was going on as they were disputing and arguing with Stephen. They couldn't handle everything that he was throwing back at them. Uh, verse number 11, then they suborned men, which means they, they, they got other men to lie about Stephen and uh, tried to dispute what he was saying, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, which he hadn't. He's just speaking the truth. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council again. We see the council coming forward, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And verse number 13, and set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth. He, didn't, he doesn't stop to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, everyone that you know they've been talking about and they've been preaching Jesus, shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. Verse 15, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face, and it had been the face of an angel. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day, Lord. I pray that you be with us this morning as we continue to study your word. And I pray that you would help us as not just today, but in the next week or two as we look at the life of Stephen just briefly. And we see really kind of a turning point in the book of Acts because up until this point, uh, the gospel has stayed primarily in Jer Jerusalem. But as we're going to see in the coming chapters, it's about to spread. As Jesus had commanded the early church for the gospel to spread 
outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Lord, that's, that's the commission, that is the mission that you have given to your church today. It wasn't just to the early church to go out and preach the gospel and speak the gospel and teach the gospel. The command, the mission is still for us today. And I pray that you would help us to realize that command, to realize our mission And Lord, it is very easy, as we've said many, many times, to be complacent in our Christianity, to stay where we are instead of moving forward. But God, I pray that you'd help us. As this series suggests, help us to make sure that the gospel is truly above all in our lives. And Lord, I dare say, as I've preached really convicting messages in my own life for the past many, many weeks now, I dare say that the gospel truly is not above all in most of our lives. Because if it was truly above all, then we would live a life conducive to the gospel, live a life that is worthy of the gospel, live a life that is pointing people to Jesus Christ and not living how we want to live, but living the way that you intend for us to live. And Lord, I pray that you would move us beyond just conviction to do something about it. And Lord, I know many of our people right now have have been going through heavy conviction with these preaching and and the messages of late, but I pray that you would help them stir them up to do something about it, to help them to be the change that this world needs and the instruments that you want to use. Lord, we love you, and I pray that you bless us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I want to give kind of a, not, not necessarily a history lesson, but kind of some historical facts or stats as I kind of start this message this morning. You know, there's something that has stood out to me as I have continued to study the book of Acts up until this point. We're getting ready to end chapter number six today. And again, what we've talked about is just the the spreading of the gospel. The gospel has spread so mightily, has it not, in really just a couple year span. Uh, it's very easy, as we, as, again, as we look at God's Word, to think everything is just kind of taking place over a couple days or a couple weeks. Uh, but really, up until this point, several years have passed since Jesus Christ has gone back into heaven. And at least, up until this point, at least 10,000 people have been saved. Maybe upwards to 20,000 people. We don't know for sure. But one thing that has stood out to me, uh, in fact, that, that these people, you know, they, they were so committed to the gospel. They were so committed to Jesus Christ. And, you know, I've been talking about identity in our church for the better part of a year and a half, upwards to two years now. And identity really stands out to me a lot that, that these people, these early Christians, knew who they were. And, I, and I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it, but there's an identity crisis in our land. There's an identity, identity crisis within our church and within our churches. There are a lot of Christians that truly don't know who they are in Christ. Uh, we're allowing the world to define us. We're allowing culture to define us. We're allowing even men or women or other figures to define us instead of allowing Jesus Christ to define us. And, and the overwhelming thing that stands out to me time and time again as I study Acts so far and as I study this early church and even outside of the book of Acts and other resources that I've used is that, man, they were committed to the gospel. They knew who they were, and they knew what it was all about. And, and you can probably say, well, it's easy for them because many of them had spent time with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Those apostles had been with Jesus for three and a half years and, and it, had committed their lives to him, and their lives have changed. And, and many of them had probably seen and, and witnessed the resurrection. And, and, and that is true. And the message was important to them, but really, whether we've been witnesses of the resurrection or not, we've witnessed, many of us have witnessed the power of the resurrection, right? The power of of what can happen in a life when you truly allow Jesus Christ to take over. And it's, it's an amazing thing when you think about. 
that Christianity is on the rise in this early first century. It started with just a handful of disciples and apostles, and then 120 in the upper room, and it's grown to at least 10,000, if not upwards to 20,000 by this time in Acts chapter number 6. You know, one of the most amazing statistics that I've seen in recent days and weeks and really years is that, again, it's, it's, a, it's a statistic, whether you take it for, for what it is or not, uh, but many believe that Christianity as a whole, now it's, they, they lump Christianity as a religion, and they put Roman Catholicism within that, they put Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern, or, or, uh, can't talk. Eastern Orthodoxy within that as well, and I don't believe everyone in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Eastern Orthodox Church is saved, but they lump it all in Christianity as a whole, and they say that upwards to 31.2% of the world's population is Christian by name. That would equate to, I got it in my statistics here, that would equate to about 2.3 billion people. That's a lot of people, isn't it? 2.3 billion people out of 7.7. Now, 7.7 is a lot of people in this world. And when you go back and kind of study the, the statistical stats of how this happened, you know, Christianity really at, at its start, by the end of the, the first century, there were probably at least 60 plus million people in the Roman Empire. That's a lot of people, nothing compared to what it is today. But at least 60 million people in the Roman Empire, and Christianity as a religion only made up less than a fifth of a percent. I'm not saying 20%, less than a fifth of a percent. Less than a percent, less than half of a percent. Very small minority were made up of these Christian, these individuals. Uh, by, the, by the end of the second century, by the year 200, there were probably upwards to 200,000 believers in the Roman Empire. Again, Christianity is growing, uh, it, and it still hadn't even reached a percent of the population. By 250 AD, upwards to 2% of the population had now become Christians, more than a million people. Two generations later, by the year 300, Christians made up approximately 10% of the population, numbering over 6 million. Again, it's on the rise. And by the 4th century, there were over 35 million Christians in the ancient world. And it's just astounding. And really, it's not about um, how, how it grew. It, the, the amazing thing is, the early, the early days of Christianity, and if you never studied this, I encourage you to study early church history, uh, because the, the, the early Christians faced a lot of persecution, more so than we have ever faced in our lifetimes and some of us will ever face. Uh, the persecution that they faced was just astounding. We've, we've talked about some of it as we've studied Revelation and just talked about some of those pastors, Polycarp and others, uh, that went through the fire, literally, uh, because of their beliefs and because of their faith. And yet Christianity was still on the rise and Christianity was still growing. You know, today, as I said, about 31.2%, you can take that number for whatever it, whatever it is. Honestly, I don't necessarily believe it's that high because they're lumping people in there that probably are not saved. They're lumping people in, in groups in there that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior. But you think about that. Let's say that statistic is true. 2.3 billion people that are saved today out of 7.7. Quick math. How many people does that leave? 5.4. Good job. 5.4 billion people in the world that are unsaved. Now that's astounding, isn't it? If 2.3 billion people are truly saved, then there is 5.4 billion that are not saved. And they say that upwards to 3.2 billion out of that 5.4 are unreached people groups, which means that have never heard the gospel. Located in what we refer to as that 1040 window, a lot of Islamic and Muslim countries. 
But I think the question that we must ask ourselves, because here's the thing, especially in America, it's very easy for us to think that, well, everyone in my town is saved. They've heard the gospel. Maybe everyone in our town has heard the gospel. Doesn't mean they're saved. But what about the people that have never heard the gospel? What are we doing? And again, some of you are probably like, I'm tired of you just getting convicting messages all the time. But this is how it has to be, church. You think about it. It's very easy for us to get comfortable in our lives, isn't it? It's very easy just for us to get comfortable where we are and think, well, I'm on my way to heaven. I'm good. Everything is great. I'm getting a good paycheck. I've got a nice income. I've got a nice house situation. And everything that I want in this life, I have. And we, most of us have that in America. You know, we could all have more. But think about the people that have never heard the gospel. Well, we need missionaries. Well, who's going to be the missionary? Well, we got to pray for missionaries, right? Well, yeah, but who of us are going to go? Who of us are going to actually listen to the call of God and do what God has called us to do? You see, I, I've said it before, a lot of churches base their success on their seating capacity. You know, in here right now, we've only got, I think, 128 seats set up. We don't obviously have that many because we have a lot of kids out today and this and that. But it's not about filling up every seat and then having multiple services and building another building. That's not measuring the success of our church. Because we could build a bigger building and have 300 or 500 or 1,000 seats. And man, good for us. We've got a 1,000 seat auditorium and we're filling up every seat. We are a successful church. To me, that's not a mark of a successful church. The mark of a successful church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Who are we sending? Who are we sending out? And that's kind of opposite of the norm of our culture in, in, in America today because it's, sometimes it's all about the numbers. It's all about how many people can you get in your little building, in your, in your confined space, in your local church. How many people can you have? But really, and I, th- I think I said this last year in our missions month, in our on-mission uh, focus, that I, I'd rather have a church that is more interested in sending out than they are keeping. And I know as I said it, it scared many people and probably drove many people away because I don't want to be a part of a church like that. I am in Decatur. I am in Wise County. This is my state. This is my home. I am not leaving. Well, good for you. But what if God were to call you to leave? I'm still not leaving. I don't really care what you say. Well, that's fine. It doesn't matter what I say. What about what God says? And that's what we have to get back to, church. That's what we have to get back to. That we have to listen and obey and believe the message of God's word. You see, this early church, they believed it. Were they perfect? No. We've already alluded to a couple individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, that tried to to cheat the church out of of money that they were lying about. And what, what happened that God took it seriously and God just wiped them off the face of this earth. But yet... As all the opposition continues and as all of the persecution is about to to unfold and take place, remember there's already been uh, threats and the threats have moved to flogging and and imprisonment. And as we'll see at the end of chapter 7, the threats move to the first martyr, the first person that is put to death, Stephen, who was stoned to death. Imagine that. It's one thing to be put to death. It's another thing to be stoned to death. I mean, imagine that. I, I, can't, I can't even imagine that. You know, how many have ever had like a, um, a snowball fight? I know it's hard to say in Texas, you know, but, you know, you have a snowball fight. And then a lot of times when I grew up in Indiana, you know, we had snowball fights, but we'd always try to, you know, pack it with ice. 
because ice hurts. You know, Michael understands this in Michigan. You know, you pack it with ice. You know, put, put some rocks in there. Put whatever you want because you want that person to bleed, right? Am I right? Yeah, exactly. I know that's bad and the pastor shouldn't say that, but I wasn't a pastor at that time, so okay. Um, but you want, you want those people to bleed. You want them to, you know, pay for it. But then, you know, you're getting pelted. You're getting hit. Uh, and it's one thing, you know, when you have two sisters and you're making them bleed and then your parents get mad at you. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but the thing is, you think about that, being stone, taking large stones, large rocks, and just being pelted. And we do that with dodgeballs sometimes, but I can't imagine dying a death by stoning. And that's where it got to, because a lot of people just did not like what the early church stood for, did not like what these early believers, these early disciples stood for. But yet the gospel went forward. Out of persecution, the, the church grew and the church grew, not really by mighty works of the apostles. Now, the apostles did mighty works. Don't get me wrong. The Bible says that. But you know how the church grew more than anything? It was through common individuals. It wasn't necessarily Peter and John and all the apostles going out and preaching mighty messages and all of a sudden thousands were saved. It was everyday common people going out and living their Christian life. That's how the church grew. And you know how the church grew above everything else? It grew by one word, multiplication. Again, I've said this. There is a difference between addition and multiplication, right? Here's the reality. The reality is most of our churches are not growing. And the truth is, Eagle Drive Baptist Church, and it's no different than most churches in this town, is not growing. We're not dying, but we're not growing. But we've had a couple people added to the church. Okay, Added to the church is great. What about multiplying? That's how the early church grew. They multiplied themselves. 120 has turned into 10,000, not just 150. You know, we get excited if we add five people. Man, praise God, we added five people. And then five years happened and like, oh, we added 10 people, but we lost 36. Praise God. That's not growing. We've got it all wrong. And we're missing the picture here. You see, we exist for the same purpose as this early church existed. And really, it's, it's going to be our mission statement for our church going forward. But we exist to see people changed by the radical power of the gospel. Early Christianity was primarily an urban faith in the beginning, established itself in the city centers of the Roman Empire. And most of the people lived together in very crowded areas and Christianity exploded primarily because of the way unbelievers saw the way believers lived close up. You think about that in your own lives. The way that our community is going to change, be affected, and really come to our church is not by all of our outreach opportunities. It's by the way that they see you live and interact with them on a daily, daily lifestyle. And the church, again, didn't grow by force. It's not forcing people to come. I mean, you can drag people in here, right? It's not going to really work. And we've probably all done that. We've like, you've got to come with me today. So I'm going to drag you. I'm going to get you up out of bed and put you in the car. I understand that. But the early church didn't grow that way. People weren't coerced into getting saved. People were drawn to the early church because of one reason. There's a thing at Oh, there it is. Thank you. All right, people were drawn to the early church because of one reason, I think. And it's a simple word. I think they were magnetic. 
I've got a magnet here, and uh, I had this great, you know, illustration in my mind. This week, I was going to get this, you know, ginormous magnet, and then just, you know, like, just start throwing things at me, and it just, you know, like, sucks it up and everything like that, like, you know, Captain America shield. But anyway, it, I bought this. It was like 10 bucks on Amazon, and it's supposed to hold like 500 pounds, and, and honestly, it works. Like, trust me, it works. I practiced on some of Amanda's weights, and it took everything that I had and her to get this off the weights. <laughs> so <laughs> this thing works. Uh, but anyway, uh, so some of my you know, illustration in my mind is not going to necessarily play out today. But what happens when iron or another force is drawn to that magnet? Does it just go away? What happens to it? It sticks to it, right? I think this is somewhat magnetic, right? So if it, if it gets close enough, it sticks to it. Let's see if I can get it off. Oh, that was close, close, close. Um, I'll leave it up there for the, the message today. But here, here's the thing. And, and I want you to understand this picture before I really get into the message this morning. I, th- this is what the Lord was kind of teaching me. I, I believe this is how the early church grew. They were magnetic. People were being drawn to them. And that's what we need. We need people drawn to us because of our magnetic lifestyles. Not because we're anything great, but the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. That people are drawn to us and they want what we have. You know, one of my primary goals in in life now more than ever is to be like Christ. You know, when I was younger, my goal necessarily wasn't to be like Christ. My goal was to be like whatever sports star was popular at that time. And for me, at that time, when I was growing up as a kid, it was Michael Jordan. I love Michael Jordan. You know, still Michael Jordan fan. He was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, basketball players of all time. And, you know, I, I think about that. How many, how many remember that old um, Gatorade commercial? Like Mike? Yeah. I copied off the words. I should sing it to you guys today. You know, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. How many remember that? Anybody? Three people. Man, you guys missed out on childhood. <laughs> I asked Mike this the other day. He's like, never heard that. Well, he was in Mexico, so that's, that's probably why. Um, but the, the song goes on. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Anybody remember now? Yeah. Seriously, I knew a couple of people would remember. I want to be, want to be, want to be like Mike. Yeah, you got it. I'm not going to continue on. Uh, but as a, as a child, you know, as a 6, 8, 10, 12-year-old, man, I, I wanted to be like Mike because Michael Jordan was cool. You know, gliding through the air with his tongue out. You know, I'm not even going to try that. But, you know, gliding through the air with his tongue out and just, you know, doing all these crazy moves in the air. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, but I realized quickly that I was never going to be like Mike because I couldn't jump like Mike. I could shoot pretty decently, but I couldn't jump like Mike. But on, on a grander scale, what I'm saying is that a lot of times as, as, as kids, as youth, you know, we have people that we're trying to imitate, right? We have their posters in our room. And I, I don't even want to ask, like, what posters you had in your room as, as a child growing up, or what posters you have right now. I don't even want to know with some of you guys, especially Kevin. I don't even want to know what he has in his room. Uh, but you understand, we have these celebrities that we want to be like. But Stephen was an individual who wasn't worried about everyone else in the crowd, everyone else in the society. Stephen is a phenomenal picture of Jesus Christ. And really, that's what we see in this message today and really going forward in the next couple weeks. Regardless of who you wanted to imitate as a child, every Christian in here should have an 
have a desire to imitate Jesus Christ, and Stephen was an individual. And the key truth that we're going to try to unpack this morning for the next few minutes is this. The gospel is growing. The gospel is growing leaps and bounds. And listen, growing in the gospel means you are becoming more like Jesus. Let me say that again. Growing in the gospel means you are becoming more like Jesus. I want us to grow in the gospel. And if we're not becoming more like Jesus, then are we growing in the gospel? No, we're not. We're growing in ourselves. We're growing in our identity. See, a, a Christ-like life is demonstrated by overwhelming love, and we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with that. Go ahead and take that away for a minute. But here's the thing. When you start to become more like Jesus, people won't recognize you, will they? They won't, because that's not who they are. But as a Christian, we should desire to be like Christ. We should desire to have a Christ-like life, a Christ-like attitude. And as a whole, in this early church, their desire was to be like Jesus Christ. And we see this evidence in the apostles' lives. They're no longer that young, immature follower that they were when they were following Jesus when he was alive. Something had happened and something had changed. We had referenced this back in Mark chapter 8, and we'd use this in our EQ time or second church time, that they lost their, their, their identity. They lost their, their suke or their psyche. They learned to lose their pre-existing self. And Stephen was a member who exemplified this truth. He's the fourth member of the local church outside of the apostles that we are met with. We've met Barnabas, we've met Ananias and Sapphira, and now we met, meet Stephen and there's two things primarily I want to talk about this morning about Stephen, and we'll, we'll go into depth later in another week. But the first thing I see is this in verses 8 through 10. Stephen was overwhelmed by a relentless love. Stephen was overwhelmed by a relentless love. Look at verse number 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And it talks about in verse 9, all those that arose against him. Look at verse number 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now get this truth down. To be full of faith and power and wisdom, which is what Stephen was. He was full of faith. He was full of power. He was full of wisdom. To be full of all of those things means to be full of love. And who do we know above everyone else that is full of love? God and his son, more importantly, Jesus Christ. I know Brother Mike's been doing a little series with the, the teens and the parents on Thursdays, Crazy Love by Francis Chan. It's a phenomenal book. And there's a couple quotes that I want to reference very quickly about really that, that overwhelming, that relentless love that God has for us that we in turn should have for him. Francis Chan says this. He says, God is calling you to a passionate love relationship with himself because the answer to religious complacency, listen to this, is not working harder at a list of do's and don'ts. It's falling in love with God. Let me say that again. You see, a lot of times we think that we have to work harder at a list of do's and don'ts and do what God has called us to do and don't do this and do this and don't do that. We've got it all wrong. God is calling us to a passionate love relationship. And what we need to do is fall in love with God all over again. He says this, and this is, this is convicting itself as well. Our greatest fear, please listen, our greatest fear should not be in failure. 
Our greatest fear should be succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Let me say that again. Our greatest fear in this life should not be about failure. And there are a lot of people that are afraid to fail. And that's why they don't try things. But the honest reality is most of us, we're afraid of failure in the Christian life, but we're not afraid of failure in real life, if that makes sense. Because we'll do whatever it takes to make more money, right? Even if we fail and fall on our face, we're not going to just be like, well, life is over. I'm just going to stay down, right? Because we have to have shelter. We have to have clothing. We have to provide for ourselves and for our family. So we're going to pick ourselves back up, aren't we? And we're going we're gonna to keep trying, even if we failed 15 times. But if we fail once or twice in the Christian life, or you know, if we're, if, if we're afraid that someone is going to slam a door on us, if we're going to witness to them and, and talk to them about it, a lot of times what we do is, all right, well, I'm done. I'm, a, I'm too afraid to fail. But as he says, it shouldn't be a fear of failure, but really succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And how many of us have has succeeded at things in life that really don't matter? I think every hand should be raised. Okay, don't raise it, but my hands are raised. <laughs> and your hand should be raised too. You see, many of us have succeeded at things in life that really don't matter because when we stand before Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, if we're saved or at the great white throne judgment, if we're not saved, he's not going to be like, hey, how was your bank account? Did you get to that magic goal of $100,000 in the bank? Did you, did you reach there? He's not going to care, is he? Hey, did you build your dream home? Is he going to ask those things? No. What have you done for me? Have you glorified me? Have you served me? Have you worshipped me? Have you led others to me? <laughs> well, no, but, 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 but Lord, I've done this. Here's my list of accomplishments. You know, honestly, this, man, this has been so convicting in my own life. And listen to this. I don't know if I have this in your notes or not. But there is a stark difference in working hard for Jesus versus allowing Jesus to work in and through you. And many Christians have it all wrong. They're working hard for Jesus. We've got to work. Work till, you know, you know, work for the night is coming when we can't work anymore. But we're working, 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 working. And we got it all wrong. <laughs> It's allowing Jesus to work in us and through us. And listen, when you dig below the surface, this is what you discover about Stephen and others like him. They lived an others-oriented, Christ-exalting life. You see, many people in this room are very much concerned about others, and that's great, and I am thankful for that. And there's many people out in the world that are very concerned about others based on how they live their lives and what they do and how they try to help other people. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Their life is not Christ-exalting. So you can be about others, but if you're not Christ-exalting in your approach, then it doesn't really matter all the things that you do for other people. Stephen was one of those individuals that it wasn't just about himself. It was about others. The very fact that he was willing to die for Jesus Christ, as we'll find out later in chapter 7, helped us realize that he is not about himself. He learned that this life was so much more than what he had to offer. This life was about his heavenly father. This life was about Jesus Christ. And he was wanting and willing to live a life that was others-oriented and Christ-exalting. 
And that's what we see about Stephen, first and foremost, that he was overwhelmed by a relentless love, even with the persecution, even with the attacks that are coming his way. He is speaking the truth in love to them because he loves them and he wants them to understand what is going on in their lives and that they need to be saved and turned from their wickedness. We move on. The second thing we see just in this short passage this morning, verse 11 through 15, not only was Stephen overwhelmed by a relentless love, but he was opposed by a great opposition. He was opposed by a great opposition. Then they suborned men. That means they persuaded others to lie about him. They suborned men which heard or which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous word. Now we haven't actually, he hasn't actually said it. We just heard some things and we're just making this up. We heard that he spoke some blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders. And I know we've never done this, right? Because someone does something wrong to us. So we're going to get back at them. So I heard this happen and I'm going to, I'm going to stir it up with you and all your friends. And then they're going to be on my side and not on your side. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not, which means he's not stopping to speak all these blasphemous words against this holy place, this holy temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. You know, these guys cannot stand Stephen, so they invent lies about him. But the thing that I I see about Stephen, and we'll look more about this next week, Stephen was not argumentative. How many have ever, when someone has lied about you to your face, you just get argumentative back at them, right? That happens to many of us. Because how, how dare you? Who do you think you are to tell me these things that aren't true? Stephen could have been like that, But that is not a replica of Jesus Christ, is it? You see, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, never did that. Even when the accusations were made against him and all those were were lying about him, Jesus didn't say, I know the truth about you, right? I'm going to post it on Facebook so all the world can see and they can be on my side. A lot of times Jesus just took it. Stephen, he didn't get argumentative. He didn't become contentious like many of us in this room do. The Bible says he was full of faith. And really, Mike Atasha sang that song about grace today. He was full of grace. He was full of faith and grace. And that freed him to live like Jesus lived. The message that Stephen was giving them was this. You don't have to work to be saved. And that scared the religious leaders. Because all they preached was a works-based religion. You work this way, and that's how you'll get saved. But here's the truth, and here's what what I want us to understand very quickly, church. These men, these Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, these priests, they were not the real enemy. Were they? Who's the real enemy? Satan. Ephesians 6, 12. Turn quickly there. We just finished this up. In our Ephesians series, Paul shows us and Paul clearly tells us who the real enemy is. It's not each other. And here's where we have it all wrong. The real enemy is not each other. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Charles B. Williams translated this passage this way. He said, For our contest is not with human foes alone, but with the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark world. That is, with the spirit forces of evil challenging us in a heavenly contest. You see, the real enemy is not each other. But this is what we do, isn't it? We make the fight with each other. We're more concerned with fighting each other than we are about joining together and fighting the real enemy. You know, honestly, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say this in a prideful way, but here's, here's the reality, and it's not just this town, but it's almost every town in America that has multiple churches. I mean, there's a lot of churches in Decatur. We all know that. I've referenced that. Every week it grows and changes. But honestly, there's at, at least, at least 10 churches in this town that should shut their doors and join forces. At least. But that's not going to happen, is it? Why? Pride. And here's, here's what it comes down to, church. We are more concerned, typically, as we sit in these pews and chairs, we are more concerned with how we can split a church than how we can grow a church. I can speak truth about that. When I came here, when a lot of the leaders within the church were trying to force me out because I was preaching the gospel. I know, it's a foreign concept. How dare he preach the Bible? How dare he preach convicting messages that we don't like? And I sat in my office for a four-hour bash fest one day and allowed them to attack me and attack me and attack me. Nothing that they said was unbiblical. We don't like your preaching. You preach too hard. Basically what they're saying, it's too convicting and we don't want to be convicted. We're not going to change. So you need to leave. You're the problem. Pretty sure I'm not the problem. Pretty sure your problem isn't with me. It's with Jesus. It's with the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of churches that are more concerned and a lot of members that are more concerned with how can we split a church than how can we start a church or how can we grow a church in the gospel. Look, when you're living for Jesus and people stand up against you, understand that you're not fighting them. You're fighting someone different than them. You're fighting an evil force. And really, they're not fighting you, are they? They're fighting someone that is greater than you, that lives inside of you if you are a Christian. And Stephen is evident of this. He didn't get there on his own. His life was evident, like Peter and John, that he had been with Jesus. Look at verse number 15. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. He had spent time with Delta Burke and Roma Downey. Some of you guys will get that later. <laughs> Touched by an angel reference, you know? CBS, way back in the day. Man, whew. one of my favorite shows growing up. But, but it was clear that he had been with Jesus because his face illuminated that he, was, he had been in the presence of Jesus. You know, there, there was a time, uh, a couple months ago, I was at a gas station. It was funny. I was at a gas station, and, and the lady behind the counter, she's like, your face, it's, it's just glowing. And I, I didn't have the, you know, the quick-witted response at the time, and I was like, well, thanks, I think it's the soap I'm using. I don't really know. <laughs> and then I got in the car, and I'm like, what was I thinking? I should have been like, it's the Holy Spirit, lady. 
it's the Holy Spirit's presence upon my life. But then you understand what I'm at. You know, you, you, someone has, has said something to you and like three hours later you come up with a good, you know, comeback. But it's already too late. I was in my car and it was only like a minute later and I, I was about to like get out. Hey, it's the Holy Spirit lady. She's like, what, what? You're, you're an idiot. Uh, go on. But, you know, I, I thought about that and it's not like I'm, I'm Stephen, but the thing is, people could tell he was different. And someone that's truly been with Jesus and someone that's truly has spent time with Jesus, you can tell by their countenance, can't you? Their countenance is not the same as other people. The soap they use is heavenly, I guess. But <laughs> it's clear that they had been with Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus. And that's what Stephen is showing us here. His face is like, it's just the face of an angel. And as I was thinking about this message and really messages to come, I couldn't help but think of some messages that I preached about a year ago. There, there's times where I, I preach a message and I'm like, man, this is exactly what we need. And then like a year or two, you know, go down the road. And I'm like, I really think we need that message now. I, I feel like, man, I'll, I think I preached that out of season. But it's not that I preached it out of season. Sometimes we need to hear those truths and we're not ready to hear those truths. But they're going to help us down the road and there's a message I preached at the very beginning of last year in our Thrive series, and I want to kind of reference very quickly this morning, and I'll reference a little bit more in our EQ time. But look, listen, Stephen had a gospel above all mindset. His identity was staked solely in the gospel. And the great tragedy today is that we don't have enough Christians who know who they are. They may be genuine believers, but their faith is just another addition to their portfolio. And when it comes to the bottom line, they define themselves in terms of their name, their job, their possessions, the people they know. The term Christian is not just a title, it's the very essence of who you are. One of Neil Anderson's books, Who I Am in Christ, he made this statement. He said, no individual can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way they perceive themselves to be. Let me read it again, then I'll explain it for those that don't understand it. No individual can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way they perceive themselves to be. What he's saying is this. If you have an identity as a thief or a gospel or as an addict or a blasphemer or whatever else you see yourself as, that's how you'll behave. No matter how, you, how hard you try to change your behavior, eventually your actions, your behaviors will fall in line with who you believe yourself to be. And really, I think the question that must be asked this morning is this. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Do you see yourself as God sees you? You know, we live in a reality world, don't we? A virtual reality world. I had a little opportunity to jump into a virtual reality world last week right after the services. Colin had the, uh, the VR goggles and I ran into that wall over there. It was awesome. I'm sure it's on video. If we do, well, let's show it to the church next week. Um, Man, it, it felt real. It was like you're walking out on a plank, like, you know, hundreds of stories up. And like, I knew the ground is underneath me, but I thought like, I'm literally going to fall and like die. So then I, I went to jump and I jumped into the wall. Um, <laughs> it's quite funny. If you left early, you missed it. You missed it, Ryan. Sorry. That's why I should be here at Second Church. I need that you need that video. I'm sure it's, oh, praise God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> But we live in a virtual reality world today. But here's the, here's the reality. Jesus wants the authority to define you. Jesus desires to live his life, his dreams, his hope, his goals through you. 
And here's what Stephen realized that is key to a gospel above all identity. Get this down. Jesus is your life. It's simple. But it's true. Jesus is your life. And if Jesus is your life, then understand, church, then you are complete in him. Everything you need for life and godliness has already been entrusted to you through the blood of Jesus Christ that is running through your veins if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. And I get tired of hearing people say things like, well, I need this to complete me. No, you don't. All you need is Jesus. He's the only thing that's going to complete you. I need more money. I need a better house. I need a better job. I need a better this. I need a better that. I need a better that. No, all you need is Jesus. And that's it. And when all you have is Jesus, as the old song says, he is all you need. And so many people think, I know what's best for my life. This is what I need to do. This is what I must do to have the best life possible. No, this is what you need. God's word running through you and coursing through your veins. That's what happened with Stephen. Stephen realized that it wasn't about me. I've had to say that before. But hey, this life is not about me. Stephen realized that. He said, it's not about me. It's all about the God that I serve, the God that I love, the God that I've given my life to. You see, we're the most selfish, self-centered individuals on this planet that I have to do things for me. I have to do what is best for me. No, you don't. You have to do what is best for God and what he has called you to do. You see, a lot of times we do things and we decide things without ever having Christ in the equation, don't we? You think about jobs that we take. We never even consider if Christ is in the equation. And I've seen this growing up in ministry and being a pastor's kid, that people leave and move towns and move cities and move states for an amazing job opportunity. Well, what about a church? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll find one when I get there. You got it all wrong. That's the complete wrong mindset. That's obviously showing that, you know, Christ isn't my life, my job, my money, my well-being is my life. For Stephen, it wasn't about that. And listen, if you believe this, then respond to this reality that you are not who you think you are. You are not your past. You are not your problems. You are not your image. You are not your reputation. You are who God declares you to be in Christ Jesus. If you put your faith and trust in him. The early church was growing in the gospel. And the main reason for their growth. Is because they collectively owned the great commission. You know I've talked about that in the weeks prior. That it's our job to collectively own the great commission. God never called those of us in his church to maintain an institution. He called us to complete a mission. God never called us to maintain an institution. He called us to complete a mission. You know, my son is starting to get in video games right now. It's kind of scary. It's like a replica of my, my life as a child. Uh, he's six years old, and my sister left uh, the Nintendo Wii for him when, when she was here a couple weeks ago. And I bought him this game. It's called Epic Mickey. And it's, it's, it's a challenging game. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, how many have ever done those uh, escape rooms? It's kind of like that. It's, it's a very thought-provoking game, and you've got to strategize and try to find your way out of each land and try to find different clues and things like that. And he's enjoying it, but, you know, I even asked him today, I was like, Nate, 
why don't we just, you know, stay in the level that you're in? He's like, no, I don't want to stay in the level I'm in. I'm like, why not? Because he's like, dad, I want to finish the game. And sometimes it's exhausting for me because he, his mind doesn't understand everything. So then the past couple of days I've been sick and dealing with like a head cold and finally starting to get over it. And he's like, dad, are you feeling better? I'm like, no, I don't want to play. <laughs> dad, you, come on, you're, you're good enough. You're, you're alive. Come on, come help me. Um, but, you know, he, he, he wants my help because he doesn't want to stay where he is. He doesn't want to stay in that zone, in that land. He wants to move beyond so that he can complete the game. And I was asking him this morning, and he basically alluded to that fact that, Dad, I want to finish the game. I want to win the game. Here's what he is saying. Dad, there's a mission in the game, and I want to complete the mission. Can you see the gospel in that? Because I can. God has given us a mission, and most of us are content with staying in a certain segment of the game. But I am comfortable here. When God has called us not to maintain, he has called us to move forward. He has called us to complete his mission, and yet we are not willing to complete it. And here's where it came for Stephen. If it comes to losing my life, listen, this is Stephen's attitude. If it comes to losing my life so that someone else can hear the gospel, then I choose to lose my life. Wow. Because we'll see that next week at the end of chapter 7 as he loses his life. That was his attitude. And don't raise your hand, but honestly, how many of us could have that same attitude that, you know, Pastor, if it comes to losing my life so someone else can hear the gospel, then I'm willing to lose my life. I dare say most of us, if not all of us, probably wouldn't raise our hand. I'm going to close in just a minute. I asked Amanda a question the other day, and, and I asked her, it was kind of a tough question, but I said, which year has been more difficult for you, 2019 or 2020? And I think a lot of us could have different answers for that. And I want you to listen to her response, and I asked her if she can use, I can use it, and she said no, but I'm still going to use it. <laughs> she said yes. She said, 2019 by far. 2020, I've made my mistakes but I've used the lessons I've learned in 2019 to adjust my attitude this year. The last part of my identity was stripped away from me last year with my running and my fitness. And so this year, I have nothing but God to lean on. I know that I'm not just a pastor's wife, a mom, or a wife first, but rather I am a child of God, his disciple, his servant. And when I focus on these things, I'm living in faith. When I focus on the former, I am living in pride. If I focus on the latter, I have a humble and willing attitude. And you see, that's what Stephen was. Stephen was a man that was full of faith, full of power, full of wisdom. I want you to remember, whatever it is that fills you is whatever controls you. If you're filled with jealousy, then the success of others will infuriate you. If you're filled with lust, then your sexual appetites will lead you into great darkness. If you're filled with anger, you will quarrel and even murder with your thoughts. But if you are filled with God's power and wisdom and full of faith, then you will live a life like Stephen that is others-oriented in Christ-exalting. And here's the key truth that they already jumped ahead a little bit earlier. Growing in the gospel means you are becoming more like Jesus. When you start to become more like Jesus, people won't recognize you because a Christ-like life is demonstrated by an overwhelming 
love. And that's what Stephen had. An overwhelming love. You know, Stephen showed us, if I can get it off. Yes. He was magnetic. And he was instrumental in really the gospel going forward, even beyond Jerusalem. Because people saw his life that he was real, he was genuine, he was authentic. He wasn't just some fake. And people know, people can tell if you're fake or not, right? They can see it out there. And whether you try to fool me, I can see it. I don't always tell you guys I can see it, but I can see it. God has helped me be able to, to, to look past the facade sometimes and see the hypocrisy within our church. And again, it, it, it's frustrating. And sometimes the weight is so heavy and so great. People ask me, whoa, are you okay? Are you mad? I'm not mad. It's just the weight is so great that I don't know what else I can do to get people to understand that you have a mission. And you have to live on mission. Look, I want this church to grow, not so, hey, look how great Eagle Drive Baptist Church is. Look how great we are. We're having to build another building. Look at us. And I don't want to grow. And, I'm, and, I, and it's not that, you know, sometimes, again, people come from other churches because they've been hurt. They're not growing. But the reality is most churches in every town in America are growing because of sheep stealing instead of multiplication. Hey, we just added 68 people from this other church in town. Praise God, we're growing. We're the thriving church in town. No, you're not. You just have all of our problems. And maybe you'll be the one that fixes them, but I doubt it. Because they weren't fixed the other three places they went. We need to get back to multiplication. We need to get back to living on mission. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in our identity in our, in our, our second time, in our EQ time. But church, understand. You know, Stephen was a man that, that represented Christ-like attitude. You know, this has been so convicting of me for, for the past several years. Look, I, I am tired of I'm tired of living the life that I want to live. I'm tired of doing the things that I want to do. I want my life to count for Christ. And I know it already counts, but I want my life to count so much that I'd be willing to to leave this. And honestly, and and I've thought about this, but if there ever came a time where God were to call me on, then I I would go, one, if if it was him calling and leading me, But two, if the church ever got to the place where they were just so against the gospel, like, I'm gone. If they're so against gospel growth, then I'm gone. Because that's not what I'm about. And that's not what my my wife is about. And if we're going to be content, I'm not saying this, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm leaving, but I want to dedicate my life to helping people who want to be about this mission. And not our mission. And it's not a kind of like let's draw a line in the sand like, you know, the Alamo and who's with me come to this side and who's against me. Most of us will probably come forward, but that's not what it's about. Why don't you actually just go live on mission? Enough of the excuses. Enough of the reasons of why you can't and all the fear of failure and this and that. And just start doing what God has called you to do and allow the Holy Spirit, the great power that is in you, to go out and use you. The gospel advanced 
more mightily in the known world, in the, in the, in the ancient world, by individuals, by normal individuals that were so overpowered by the Holy Spirit and so overtaken by their mission. It wasn't necessarily the ones that were the greatest. Sometimes it's the one that are the least that are willing to surrender to themselves. And really, that's what it comes to. This church is not going to grow because of my magnetic personality. It's going to grow because of you. And if it doesn't grow, because of, and if it doesn't grow then yes, it's, it's on me, but it's also on you. And the reason a lot of churches aren't growing is because the people that are within the seats. We want the church to grow, but we don't want it to change, and we, want, we don't want new people. We just want more of our friends so we can just hang out together all the time. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing life together, and I encourage that. But really, the more we do life together, the more it should point us towards gospel engagement, towards as we're doing life together, how can we encourage each other to go out and live the gospel and to go make the gospel above all? That's what it should come down to. But most of the time, it doesn't come down to that, does it? Because we're talking about everything under the sun except for that. But we're doing life together with our friends and our family. Who cares? Do life together to encourage each other. That's what the early church did. Yeah, that, that fellowship was an important aspect of the church. We've already alluded to that. But the fellowship was there to push them forward, to hold each other accountable. You know, Stephen, an amazing individual, he was Christ-like because he demonstrated the overwhelming love that Jesus Christ has for his church and has for us. And first and foremost, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, and as I've said many weeks before, it's as simple as those ABCs. Admit you're a sinner. Believe on Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he rose from the dead. And confess your sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not something you have to do coming forward. It's something in your seat. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Be my Savior. This past week, that's what my son did, Nate, at the doctor's office. And we joked that he was blind Bartimaeus. Now he can see. (laughs) He literally couldn't see, but now he can. But he realized that, hey, I'm a sinner. He's known everything that he's supposed to say for months. He knew all the right words. And the reality is there's probably a lot of people in church that know what they're supposed to do, but have never actually done it. And it's evident by how they live their lives because Christ hasn't really overtaken you. Your pride, your arrogance, everything else has. If you're growing in the gospel, it means you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. So if you're not becoming more like Jesus Christ, then you're probably not growing in the gospel. And the reality is most of us would say that I want to be like Jesus. And I'll probably talk about this more in the next hour. But listen, do you understand what it means to be like Jesus? I mean, do you really understand? Because Jesus didn't just have this, you know, flowery, awesome life. He suffered. So if you really want to be like Jesus, then you'd be willing to suffer as Stephen, as the apostles. And the reality is most of us don't want that. Nope, I don't want to be like Jesus. I just want all the blessings. Heads bowed and eyes closed.